Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. To quote Rosenquist, the hardest thing to have is an idea. If you have an idea, have faith in it, and more importantly, have faith in the artist and the artist's vision. That was Sarah C. Bancroft, a curator and art historian who received her MA from the Courtauld Institute of Art in London and went on to be a curator at the Guggenheim Museum and the Orange County Museum of Art. She has served as executive director of the James Rosenquist Foundation since 2015 and also serves as chief curator of the estate of James Rosenquist. She and Walter Hopps co-curated the 2003 James Rosenquist retrospective for the Guggenheim Museum in New York, which traveled to the Menil Collection and MFA Houston and on to Spain and Germany. She was recently elected president of the board of directors of the Richard Diebenkorn Foundation, where she served as a board director since 2015. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. Oh, no more than I am. And particularly because many of our listeners are aware of individual artist-endowed foundations, some of them quite famous, but may not be aware that there are over 400 of them. And a while back, Artnet had a headline that read, Foundations established by U.S. artists have become a $7 billion philanthropic force. So could we start with your telling us a bit about what these foundations are and what they do? Sure. Well, on the most basic level, they are exactly what the name implies, artist-endowed foundation. So an artist, usually when preparing for what happens after death, but sometimes during their lifetime, decides to endow a foundation with assets, be it artwork, funds, copyright, archives, real estate, one or any number of those things in order to establish and promote a certain legacy often related to the artist's body of work itself, but sometimes it moves beyond just promoting the artist and shepherding their legacy into the far future. There's no one-size-fits-all. So, of course, people have heard of Warhol Foundation and Daedalus and Liechtenstein, Rauschenberg, and any number of large foundations, Joan Mitchell. But even those foundations are very distinct from each other. Equally important are small, nimble foundations. There's a collegiality among us as cultural workers. We have a great deal of respect and collegiality, even though our missions might be quite distinct. Let me start by asking you more basically how an artist-endowed foundation differs from more typical estate planning to benefit the heirs of an artist. That is a great question. I'm going to start by saying an artist endowed foundation typically and ideally would be aided by a foundation lawyer, whereas an artist estate for the benefit of heirs, that's a trust and estates lawyer who would be handling that aspect. And when you have an artist with various assets, cultural assets, ideally you'd have both types of attorneys working together because what benefits the heirs is very different than what will benefit a foundation, and more importantly, what the foundation will benefit. An artist-endowed foundation is for the benefit of the public. So it's quite distinct from what a trust and estates lawyer would set up for the family. And in fact, an artist-endowed foundation cannot benefit the heirs, cannot benefit the family. It has very different goals. So it is very distinct process, very distinct planning and discussions that go on. And that is why you would want different people sitting at the table having those important discussions. 
But there are errors sometimes on the boards, right? Even though they're not meant to benefit personally. Yes, there can be. There are very particular rules. So at a certain point, you won't find family members a direct heir on the board. They might be on an advisory committee. You know, there are very detailed rules on who can serve and how they can serve and if they're a disqualified party. How much time do they spend monitoring abuses like copyright violations? Mm -hmm. Not a lot. I mean, we have a lot of foundations have entities that do this for us. So for Rosenquist, we work with Artist Rights Society in New York, ARS. And I'd say we send a handful of cease and desist letters That's not a huge priority because we don't see a lot of abuses. And when we do, it's pretty easy to shut down. Now, I have to wonder, I can only speculate that an entity like Warhol or Herring that has like large, robust licensing projects for an artist with very graphic, very easily reproduced work with wide international appeal, they may spend more time doing that, hunting that down and kind of shutting things down. But that's not a main priority of a foundation. It's important that we do that to protect our assets and our rights. But I'm fascinated by this question because it's, it's not something that I've personally had to invest a lot of time with. I think all of us are out there to promote research, exhibition, scholarship, conservation, really getting art and ideas out there and fostering an environment where people are engaging with the artists that we are handling. Recently, there was a documentary about forgeries in the modern art world and the market, and I'm just wondering if that's something you've come across in the foundations you've worked in or in other ways. I think anyone who works with artists, for artists, in foundations, in studios has seen these, and so often it's so very obvious you know, mm-hmm. that these works aren't by the artist. It's very clear. But there are instances where it's less obvious. Let me speak as a curator, a former curator. When I was organizing the Ocean Park Series exhibition, a Diebenkorn exhibition for the Orange County Museum of Art, which traveled nationally to the modern in Fort Worth and to the now closed but really beautiful Corcoran Gallery of Art in D.C. I immediately, when I started work on that show, went to the Diebenkorn Foundation, of which I'm now the president which feels somewhat remarkable, (laughs) Um, (laughs) to be honest, as a former curator working with the artist. I immediately went to them because I only wanted to consider work that had been vetted and was fully acknowledged by the catalog resume. And of course, at the same time, I'm developing checklists. And there's one work I had put on the checklist, shared the checklist with my colleagues at the foundation and received a very quiet aside that, you know, we don't think you should consider that work. Yes, that work has been donated to a public institution. Yes, it's in their collection. Yes, it's listed as a Diebenkorn, but we don't anticipate including it in the catalog resume. Mm-hmm. That is a prime example of extremely important work that foundations do. Had I not been working so closely with the foundation to ensure that I was only working with the appropriate artworks that they considered by Diebenkorn, I would have included this work. Because to me... Sure. It definitely looks like a Diebenkorn. And of course, now we know more. You're referencing a documentary. You know, it included Diebenkorn works that were forgeries. They weren't by Diebenkorn, but, you know, were forgeries. And that may have been a work that I had encountered in that experience. I really don't know. Um, I think the museum quietly removed it from their holdings or it's in deep storage now. Um, But but those are the types of incidents that you don't look forward to. 
Well, as a museum veteran, it's always weird to me when museums are quiet about stuff like that. I mean, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Right. The public loves to see experts tripped up. It would create such a maelstrom of excitement, and yet we always like to hide our mistakes, and that's how the world works. But let me ask you, since right. you have experience in both museums and mm -hmm. in AEFs, there are twice as many artist endowed foundations as museums in the Association of Art Museum Directors. How would you compare the priorities of an artist endowed foundation with the priorities of a contemporary art museum? Firstly, I am fascinated by that statistic. I'm fascinated. And of course, I <laughs> yeah. want to immediately Google and see who are these institutions. Um, yeah. Because namely, the organization that I and so many of my colleagues has found so helpful is the Artist Endowed Foundations Initiative at the Aspen, the Aspen Institute. Institute. Every year there is, you know, a conference and also there's what I will happily call a boot camp for new yeah. foundation leaders. I went through it in 2015 mm -hmm. or 16, where you're really given an excellent grounding in all the legal aspects of what it means to be an artist and down foundation, things that might trip you up if you weren't aware. And so that's the organization I'm used to working with. Now, I think that museums and Artists endowed foundations do have some common goals, but they're very distinct. We have such specific, intimate goals that are shared with museums, but are more like corollaries. So, you know, a main goal of a museum, what we think of when we think of museums is the exhibitions, is the programming, is public facing projects, is commissions. It can be architecture even. It can be so many things. As the director of a foundation and as the president of the board of the foundation, I want to see my artists having vibrant, exceptional exhibitions at museums. I want to further research and scholarship of their work. I want curators to come and do research with us. I want curators to come and see work. But that is collaborative rather than being a similarity Our priorities are more intimately involved with one artist. They're two very different cultural beasts. The way you describe it, Sarah, it's interesting. It's kind of like a fine line between the advocacy of an AEF and mm -hmm. the advocacy of a gallery, in that as a gallery is looking to make sure the reputation of an artist meets what they believe it to warrant, as you do, you sell works, a gallery sells works. So there is some currency there that's a bit different. And in museums, I think they've drawn so close to the market in recent years that the barrier between museums and the market is all but gone of the artists they choose to highlight, the galleries they work with, the stable that they draw from. So I think all three entities mm -hmm. are kind of satellites of each other, no? They're definitely satellites of each other. And yet I think this makes the work of foundations ever more important because yeah. while we're all part of the system, and of course we all respond to the market, similar to museums, foundations that have collections, those collections benefit the public. You know, it's kind mm -hmm. of like the New York Public Library. Are they trying to sell their rare book collection or are they trying to share it with the public? Now, mm -hmm. obviously, many foundations do judiciously sell work to, to fund their operations, but the core of their collection is really held, you know, in trust for the public in order to lend to exhibitions, in order to provide access to scholars and researchers. We can operate similarly to a museum, but we're not a museum. For the most part, yeah. most of us aren't operating nonprofit gallery spaces to show the work, for instance. We want the work to be shown in gallery spaces at museums, and we want healthy markets for the artists. 
But I also think that they're very nimble, very sophisticated, smaller organizations who have spent decades, foundations that have spent decades building a market interest in museums and art historians and curators and with dealers. They've spent decades slowly and diligently building the market for their artists. And I have such respect for the Jay DeFeo Foundation, where Leah Levy for 30 years has increased both access and kind of knowledge about this key artist that those of us who are art historians and have worked with that period of artwork, of course we know Jay's work, but did the general public 30 years ago know about Jay? Were they thinking about her? Were they thinking about what she was doing in, in the mm-hmm. Bay Area and in California? I think that foundation has done a tremendous job of yeah. shepherding and fostering Jay DeFeo's work. An amazing work, The Rose on View at the Whitney when I was there yeah. 20 years ago yeah. was such a mm-hmm. moment. And it's on view right now. So an incredible advocacy, as you say. Now, I want to drill into two of the artists whom you're so dedicated to. Sure. One being Rosenquist. You've written a great deal, of course, about his work, including for a show in London at the Galerie Tadeus Hopak. And you were very key in the catalog around his retrospective in 2003. I would describe him as among our most Baroque artists, if you'll allow me. And he was experimenting with all these techniques. How do you make a connection for an artist like that with this very inward-looking generation that skews perhaps less to that type of bombast? So Jim is known and identified as a pop artist. They didn't all know each other at the time, but the curators and historians and gallerists saw what was happening and kind of grouped them together. And that's how they met. It's not a term that Jim preferred. He Mm -hmm. aligned himself with surrealists and surrealism. He felt Mm -hmm. an affinity to surrealism. So he was kind of looking back to what those artists were doing. And I would say surrealism is very much an inward looking form in response to the chaos of wartime, a previous wartime. And Jim was operating also during the heightening troubles of the early Vietnam War. It wasn't called a war at that time, but he was similarly responding to the tempest of the times. And I can't speak to younger artists working today or or younger generations looking at his work, except to say Jim was also inward looking in his work Mm -hmm. and also very responsive to what was going on around him. And in a way it was very sophisticated because it wasn't in your face. It wasn't immediately obvious. His works were very mysterious and difficult to decipher at first. And they kind of seep out slowly. His process was to build a collage, a study on paper from which he would paint. So he was composing in the collage and then executing on canvas It was a very controlled, very um, conceptualized process where he knew exactly what he was going to do based on the collage. But he wanted those collages to be disjointed and mysterious and not immediately recognizable. He wanted them to be beyond nostalgia, Mm -hmm. even though he's using advertising imagery and brands that were well known to the population. Advertisements from Life magazine and Time and some photographs he took himself. But I think his work is still so relevant and so incredibly fresh because we're still dealing right now with many of the same problems that he was addressing in the work. You know, he Mm -hmm. was responding to a military industrial complex. We've been 
you know, in a war in Afghanistan for how many years now? 20 years? Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of this futile, endless war. It's not dissimilar to the Vietnam War that Jim was responding to and the futility he felt. And certainly one of his most well-known works, the F-111, was a a critique, this candy-colored, day-glow, very appealing, visually appealing work was a heavy critique of that military-industrial complex. And I think that work and so many of his works are still operating today. And what are some of the priorities that you're focusing on in the advocacy of his work? It's a very young foundation. And Jim founded it while he was still alive, but he passed away in 2017. And as we await the settlement of his estate, we're not fully operational. And yet we do Mm -hmm. know, I had several deep conversations with him over years, about what his objectives were, even before I knew he wanted me to be the head of his foundation. You know, Mm -hmm. as an artist, he wasn't interested in certain details. He was interested in big ideas. So he had been talking about having a foundation for many years and asking me if I would serve. And I would simply respond, I would be delighted to serve, thinking I would be a board member. And that's all I thought about it. When he finally asked me in 2014 if I'd be the director of his foundation, I was actually pretty shocked because we'd never had that conversation. I had co-curated his retrospective for the Guggenheim 10 years earlier, but we I just thought, wait, what? I'm a curator. You want me to be a foundation director? Like, let me think about this. But I was real I was more interested in what he wanted. I was really yeah. fascinated by what he thought a foundation should be and what his goals are. Because any foundation takes a long view. It's not about being responsive, like a hair trigger responsiveness. It's about ensuring that you're advocating for the artist long-term, well beyond my lifetime even. Making sure their work is still seen as relevant by creating access to it. And for Jim, his priorities were to focus on artist materials, artist materials, artist materials. So that gives us a lot of fodder. Like, how do we do that? How do we get materials into the hands of young artists? Right now, while we're somewhat limited, those are the conversations we have. And some of the ways we've been responsive before we're fully operational is we have funded studentships in partnership with Graphic Studio at USF, where Jim did an incredible amount of work in the 70s. And he had such a close relationship and an important relationship with that institution. And in speaking with them about how can we enable a student who wouldn't otherwise have access to resources to create their own art, what can we do to help them? And it was actually Margie who said to us, why don't we do a studentship so that some artists, whether undergrads or grad students, can work with professional artists making prints at Graphic Studio, be paid for it, with the understanding that that money would go towards their artist materials. And I think for us to listen and hear and not completely direct exactly how the money was used, but knowing it was going ultimately where Jim wanted it to go, that was important. We also fund a prize there for students. I think every foundation has a responsibility to advocate for opportunity, advocate for access, advocate for equity. That's something we're always talking about internally. It's even reflected in like our licensing projects, like who we're working with, what they're giving back, what they're doing, whether it's working with the skate room. It's like a for-profit entity that also gives either 5% of turnover or 25% of profits to educational initiatives. And they essentially create skateboards with images of artists' work and then use that. Not only does it bring funds to our foundation, 
but it brings funds to educational opportunities around the world through Skate Room and Skatistan. That for mm-hmm. us is an exciting partnership. Or working with Double Dutch, where you can buy a digital art card that features Jim's work that you send as a gift to someone while donating to a cause that's important to you or them. Thinking beyond just bringing money in, but how can we make a social impact beyond Jim's work into the larger social conversation that's going on right now? And you are somehow capable, which very few of us can understand, to also (laughs) have been elected president of the Richard Diebenkorn Foundation. Tell us the distinction in roles. Very different roles. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to sit on both kind of sides of the coin at different institutions. So I am director of a foundation. So I'm on staff. You know, that's very different than being the president of the board of an artist foundation where you're not directly involved in the day to day. It's an oversight role. It's kind of a vision role. It's a planning role. They're very different. And yet we often have many of the same conversations, but I'm not on the ground in the Diebenkorn Foundation. I will note, yes, it's somewhat remarkable to have these two roles at the same time. It's not something I foresaw. You know, when my predecessor retired from the Diebenkorn Foundation, which was last fall, it was at the suggestion of my colleagues on the board that I should stand for this role. I didn't consider it. It didn't seem possible. I have a six-year-old at home who's been home in school this whole year. You know, the transparency of what actually happens in our personal lives those of us who work in the art world, which is such a tremendously vigorous world to work in. It's rarely a 40-hour-a-week job. I think it's important to be transparent. We're always giving so much, but we're also balancing personal lives. And I thought, how can I do this? And in fact, it has been it has been possible because they're yeah. so distinct. The Diebenkorn Foundation was founded by Phyllis Diebenkorn after Dick Diebenkorn's death 30 years ago. It's in a different part of its lifespan than the Rosenquist Foundation. So if anything, one job informs the other. They kind of complement each other. Sarah, very few scholars are equally at ease with two such different artists as Rosenquist and Diebenkorn. As a classicist, I would say they're 20th century versions of Dionysus and Apollo, but you can correct me. What advice would you give to younger scholars who are coming up in the field of contemporary art? to avoid working in a silo and to being open to those kinds of differences? I love this question. It's two very distinct questions. So I'm going to answer the second part first so I can get to the first part, which I might answer (laughs) with a little more length. When I was interviewing at the Orange County Museum of Art, they were very interested in me because they wanted me or someone like me to organize the Diebenkorn Ocean Park Series exhibition. I was very interested in working with young emerging artists from my own generation, very contemporary work, working with commissions, building new things, rather than just artists from the past. Of course, working with Diebenkorn and working on an Ocean Park exhibition was of great interest to me. And that was a huge benefit, but I would not have gone just to do the Diebenkorn show I needed to know I could also work with younger artists, emerging artists. I needed to know that. So I simply asked, can I do contemporary shows? Can I work with contemporary artists? Can I work with emerging artists? What are the opportunities to work in this institution on other types of exhibitions rather than large traveling shows, blockbuster painting shows by established Mm -hmm. titans 
of the art world. And they yeah. said, well, yeah, of course, you're going to do the California Biennial. You can propose other exhibitions. And at that point, I thought, well, this is really perfect. You know, I know I can do the Ocean Park show. They want someone with my experience who's handled kind of large traveling shows of a major American artist. I want a new experience. You know, my career was backward in a way. I started as a very young artist right out of grad school, working at a major institution on a major exhibition, major traveling show um, with a big budget. And it doesn't always work that way. I mean, as you know, that's a little bit (laughs) backward. I wanted to have a a different experience and Orange County really gave that to me. So I would say- You know, if you have an idea, if you have an instinct, if you have a goal, if you have a desire to work with certain types of artists, A, you have to ask, you have to pitch, you have to push for it, go out there and do it. To quote Rosenquist, the hardest thing to have is an idea. If you have an idea, have faith in it. And more importantly, have faith in the artist and the artist's vision. And that means having faith in the contemporary artists with whom you're working. Their vision is always going to be far and beyond mine. And so, you know, I've always put my faith in them, bringing them into yeah. the institution and letting them do their, their thing. So I think it's it's about ensuring that you won't just be siloed, asking important questions, but also pitching the things you need to pitch and going mm-hmm. out on limbs and and taking risks and not being afraid of failure. And then no. Rosenquist yeah. v. Diebenkorn? <laughs> oh my gosh. This is, this is so amazing. I'm so glad you asked this bit about like, you know, and... Apollonian artist versus a Dionysian type artist, immediately my mind is going to like a very staid patrician Greek Kuro sculpture of a very mm-hmm. kind of, you know, static young man with one arm, his arms down and one foot forward. And he's, it's not expressive per se versus the kind of ecstatic energy of the House of Mysteries, the Villa of Mysteries mm. in Pompeii, where there's this strange tradition or induction happening. So Jim would be the more ecstatic artist, I think, in mm-hmm. your mind. And and Diebenkorn would be the, the more staid and logical and kind of orderly artist. And I absolutely get that. And I think, you know, in terms of personalities and, and manner, that's quite obvious. The beauty of this analogy or this metaphor is their practices were absolutely the opposite. Absolutely yeah. the opposite. You know, well, you Deben called Diebenkorn orgiastic, right? You said Yeah, that- yeah. <laughs> absolutely. You know, right is calm is what I use to describe Diebenkorn in the title of one essay I wrote. And I had been waiting to use that because I did something I'd wanted to use when I was at Orange County. And it was overwritten by others, let's just say. And I was like, no, it's the perfect description because underneath Mm -hmm. the calm veneer was this like battle and emotion and spontaneity and serendipity. And that was his practice. He wasn't creating studies. He wasn't masterminding. I hate to use the word master, but he wasn't dictating every last detail of what the paintings were going to look like. Like for the Ocean Park paintings, there were no studies. These are massive Mm -hmm. Huge paintings. You see the patina, you see the pentimenti, you see the process, you see the mistakes. He lets you see them. They're rich and deep and vibrant and not perfect. They're messy. They're emotional. He was very intuitive. He was embracing the spontaneity. Whereas Jim, in his practice, now you call him very Baroque, and I get that absolutely, you know, with these big, bold, massive paintings on occasion making huge visual statements, but his practice was quite orderly, very organized, 
every painting started with a collage. And that was directly related to his billboard experience where he would be Mm -hmm. handed an image, whether it's like Kirk Douglas in a movie, and he had to literally take this little black and white picture of Kirk Douglas and scale it up on a massive billboard, like 16 by 48 feet, and grids out the billboard and scales up by hand. When he started working on his own fine art, he simply incorporated that practice into his studio. He would take imagery from lifetime photographs, create his own collages to create a quite a mysterious composition where each image was in a different scale. So your eye couldn't quite settle. It's kind of bouncing around the image. And then he would compose in the collage and execute on canvas. It is always very obvious which collage or collages are for which painting. There wasn't a lot of difference. I mean, obviously he would nuance the paintings, but he really was painting from those collages. It was very orderly, very organized, conceptualized. Every painting has more than one story informing it. You know, it's Jim. If you hear him talk about his work, when he speaks about the work, it's not a logical point A to point B to point C. He's always coming in sideways. There are always layered stories. There's a personal story. There's a larger kind of cosmic story. There are many, many different things coming into play, but the process itself was so very organized. And he called himself a working stiff. That was his approach. Like he wanted to be in the studio. He would complain if when he was on vacation, you know, he might call me and say, ah, I just want to get back to the studio. I would say their temperaments were absolutely the opposite as what one would predict in terms of their studio practice. And that is why I love this question so much, because it's not obvious necessarily. What, Sarah, does it mean to have evicted that one-term president from the White House and now having a person with progressive, surprisingly progressive values, Mm -hmm. happily progressive Mm -hmm. values in the White House for the World of Artists and Doubt Foundations? Are Mm -hmm. there on the horizon opportunities in advocacy and support and other forms of federal involvement that might be in the offing? This is a great question. Probably not for the reason you think, um, but it's <laughs> such an important question. As nonprofit foundations, we cannot lobby. We cannot take a stand mm-hmm. on federal or you know state or municipal law or certain politicians. We cannot do that. We can't stand out there and advocate in any way for this president, that president, this proposition, that proposition. And yet, you know, if you look at politics beyond just the government, there are so many opportunities for us to advocate in ways that are powerful and important. And I've I've mentioned a few of them already, but I think so many of them have to do right now in particular with advocating for inclusion, advocating for equity in terms of people who are contributing to this cultural sphere in which we work, creating opportunities for more people and different Mm -hmm. voices to join this forum. And that is something I think we all should be doing. And it's speaking beyond just the artist's artwork. Our social movements are responding to what's going on in our time. The artists responded to what was happening in their youth and in their time. They're no longer with us. How can we use our resources to respond to what's important in our time that is supplemental to, you know, not just fostering the legacy of an artist and creating opportunities for research, scholarship, and exhibition, but bringing more more and different voices to the table who can do that in new and important and significant and vital and challenging ways. And I think your work, you've shown in the work you do, that it's possible, it's significant, it's important, and it can be done well. And 
it's something that's that I think we'll see ever more of amongst our colleagues. The province of Artists Endowed Foundations is somewhat less fraught than the province of museums at the moment because they're facing so many reckonings about mm -hmm. representation and authority and trusteeship and funding issues. So you and I are in preserves where we have a luxury right. to focus. And I'm grateful for it, but I'm especially grateful you made time for the conversation today. Sarah, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking today with Sarah C. Bancroft, Executive Director of the James Rosenquist Foundation and President of the Board of Directors of the Richard Diebenkorn Foundation. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.